Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 156 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Gregoire. And just before we get to our interview, we've got a couple of things to pimp, and I want to pimp them at the beginning, because what happens if you guys wow. fade out before the end? Pimp it, pimp it, baby, go. On the 14th of November, if you are in Brisbane, Queensland, there will be a Science Says, which is a science <laughs> comedy panel game show. Ah. Oh. It is so much fun to do. It's probably my favourite thing to do of the year. So I will be a contestant on that with Dr. Joel Gilmore, who is one of our favourite guests. He will be running it. And I also believe that if you're in any other capital cities on the east coast of Australia, there will be a science panel show in your city as well. So track that down. There will be a link on the Smart Enough to Know Better webpage, which is smartenough.org. Nice. Then, a week later, a what? mere week later, again, if you're in Brisbane, Australia, there will be <laughs> the premiere of a play called Die Hard, the movie, the play, Woo-hoo. which is a play that Greg has helped me write. Hey, I'm one of the... <laughs> one of, that's, not, that's not a thing. That's not how... It is a thing, but also, that's not how you put it. Okay. <laughs> Greg and Girl Clumsy and myself have all put in the time to write a play, which is a parody of the film Die Hard, which itself is a parody of the novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick mm. Thorpe. That sounds more like a James Bond title. It does, Nothing doesn't it? Nothing lasts forever, forever. That sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, which I assume that's why they retitled it Die Hard, which sounds Die- just yeah. like how, what it is. Yeah. But who dies hard in Die Hard? The, well, oh, some, yeah, well, yeah, spoilers. Terrorists, lots of terrorists. They die quite hard. <laughs> I mean, no, no, they they all die quite easily. Well, no, I know. Isn't that the um, point that John McClane is the guy who dies hard because he doesn't die? Well, that's not. That's living. That's living. Living hard. Or no, he fights the big blonde gianty guy and he dies hard. Like he has. It, a, and I it, mean, the phrase is "old habits die hard." Yes. Means that it they don't die. You keep doing you keep smoking until you get emphysema and die. And oh. even then you're sneaking out the back of the hospital and having a sneaky puff. So, so John die McClane hard means continues on forever. Oh so John McClane really does he's he is an old habit. That's the thing now. After after the the five movies or six movies or twelve movies, whatever it is, that yeah, that's true. Okay, but anyway, this doesn't help our come to our play. That's what we're trying to say here. Yep, come to our play. If you want to. Like, it's selling, like, hotcakes. We're not doing this to to guilt you into coming along to our play. Please please support us. No, this thing is selling like hotcakes. We're still, like, a month out, and it's already half sold. So More than half sold. More than half sold. Like, it's inconceivable how popular this thing is. This is for your benefit. If you (laughs) would like to come along, we're offering you this opportunity to come and give us money. Yes, Right. Yes, that's that's. If you come and enjoy something, for goodness sakes. Anyway, science—that's a thing. That yes, we sometimes talk about. And you know who doesn't talk about the plays that they've written? Proper science people. And we've got one today. Dan, I have a love of rocks and all things rocks, but there's been something gnawing at my soul for a long time now about rocks. 
everything about rocks comes from, well, the Earth, I mean, the definition of rocks. Everything we know about rocks is the processes of rocks seems to be based on the planet Earth. So igneous rocks are rocks that will out of the ground and, and solidify, and sedimentary rocks are rocks that get sort of worn down and then packed together as little bits of pieces, and, and metamorphic rocks that go under pressure and heat. And But it's all planet-based, Dan. It's all planet-based, and I just... But what about rocks that aren't planet-based? I, I need to understand the answers. Can you help me, Dan? Do you know the answers? Well, my father's a geologist, but oh. he's getting pretty old and long in the tooth these days. <laughs> I mean, I guess when it comes down to, like, geological time, he's still quite young. Like, he's he's quite young compared to what he was researching. That's true. That's but very, he, that's, that's... He, he doesn't make quite as much sense as uh, what he was researching. Okay, anymore. well... We won't, we won't get, we won't get your father help. So we will get someone else. So anyway, got those, on... the rocks that he studied, he was a paleobotanist. So the, uh. the rocks that he was were all muddied up with all that biology. Yeah, we don't want that. We want to go somewhere pure, like in space. So to that end, please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lucy Foreman, an astrogeologist from Curtin University. Hi, <laughs> Dr. Lucy. Thank you for joining us. No worries. So, so, so if you're an astrogeologist, geologist means a rock scientist and astro means star. So does that make you a rock star scientist? I mean, potentially, potentially. I, I don't really look at stars. I look at asteroids and planets. So a little bit closer to home than stars. I'm, I'm happy to be called a rock star. That's fine. If it, if, it, <laughs> if it really comes down to it, most of the things that we see are starlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... So it's it's definitely a big part of looking at rocks is having yeah, a star I, involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> we're getting to the basics here. Light mainly comes from stars. I just want everyone the same. We're all astronomers now. Everyone's a, I'm going to go knit using astronomy. You Excellent. can't build a strong house without a good foundation, Greg. This, this is first principles. All right. But Dr. Lucy, as you've heard, I have this question burning burning deep inside i I guess let's start with the silliest question are there rocks as we understand them on earth in space absolutely oh thank goodness this podcast is going to go somewhere thank goodness (laughs) otherwise no we're done here Absolutely, there is. I mean, if we consider our terrestrial planets, they're all fairly similar. They have some subtle differences, but they are all quite Earth-like in their own special ways. And then if we think about the moon, for example, is very, very similar to Earth in terms of the rocks that are out there. And then if we go to the asteroid belt, they're quite different rocks than what we might expect to find on Earth. But the processes are still, we can still understand them with the principles that we understand rocks that have come from Earth. Sometimes you hear about mining. So talk about going to get metals from from asteroids. And I hear about, oh, maybe we can get water as well. Like there's ice up there, water ice, other sorts of ice. So it's not just metal and ice. It's something that if I held it in my hand, I would say, oh, that's that's a rock. Yeah, yeah, definitely, okay. definitely. And I, I, I have so many of them that I play with pretty much Ooh. every day. So. <laughs> okay, excellent. Actual proof in your hands. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty cool. I have to pinch myself every day to remind <laughs> myself how cool this is. So you, be, you must have therefore held things in your hand that are potentially older than the entire planet Earth. Oh, uh, yeah, pretty much. What? Pretty much. That's crazy. <laughs> that's not. That's not right. That can't. That feels wrong for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why. So, what sort of rocks are space rocks? Are they igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic? What's What's going on? Or I, is it something else? Is there another category that I haven't even heard of before? Now it depends where you want to go to in space. 
Oh, wait. Uh, um, uh, what are my options? <laughs> um, okay, so specifically in our solar system, because I, I don't have any knowledge further than that, really, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> so we, we could go to our terrestrial planets, we could go to the moon, we could go to asteroids. Okay, let's let's start with the things sort of similar to us, so the terrestrial planets. Uh-huh. So, what about so? What about rocks on them? Are they? Are they would we recognise those as igneous rocks or something like that? Yeah, we definitely would recognise those as igneous, and those are rocks that have come from mainly volcanic settings, right? So that could be on top of the surface. So if we if we consider what volcanic rocks are on Earth, they could have solidified from a lava flow that would have been on the surface of our Earth. It would have flowed. So if we think about places like Hawaii, where we've got lava flows happening, and then they solidify and become part of the islands, which is really awesome. And we would call those extrusive volcanic rocks. And we also have rocks that have formed underneath the surface of the Earth, which we would call intrusive rocks. They tend to be a little bit different. So if we go to our terrestrial planets, we have a lot of those extrusive rocks. So we have a lot of lava flows that we're seeing. So on the extrusive surface. being extruding like clay through a spaghetti sieve. Yeah. Or Vegemite yeah. through the salada biscuit. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Making it relevant to our Australian listeners. Well done, Dan. <laughs> no worries, mate. <laughs> Um, yeah, so on our on our terrestrial planets, we see a lot of volcanic evidence of volcanic activity, not necessarily current volcanic activity. The rocks that we get from those planets, well, specifically from the Moon and from Mars, they are volcanic rocks that we would see on Earth. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we see a lot of the igneous rocks, extruded rocks, on other planets because they wouldn't have as much weathering as the Earth. Would that be a fair assumption? Not as, in, as in our Earth ones have been worn away over time or, or you know, replenished somehow. Yeah, but I mean, on Earth, we also have active volcanism, right? Mm, um, I, whereas on other planets, we don't necessarily have active volcanism. Oh. Um, but you're, you're very much correct in that we don't have that weathering on these other planets. They have differing kind of atmospheres to what we have on Earth. But if we think about Mars, for example, we've still got a lot of wind processes happening on Mars. We do still see a huge amount of volcanic rocks on Mars. And all the meteorites, apart from one that we have from Mars, are all volcanic. But the amount of times I hear people talk about sedimentary rocks on Mars, because Mm. they are hugely significant, is big. But we don't have any of those as meteorite form. So sedimentary rocks, once again, I'm just pulling from like basically high school information from my brain here. Sedimentary rocks are formed when a rock is worn down, normally flows into a river or into a lake or an ocean, and it's packed up over time and it crushes down into a into a, a new rock from yeah. layers. Yeah, you're okay. absolutely right. Absolutely. And that can be made from any different kind of rocks that is that is around it. It doesn't have to be a sedimentary rock that's worn down to create a new sedimentary rock. It can be Volcanic rock, metamorphic rock, any material, really, that it can... So if we were getting a lot of sedimentary rocks as meteorites from Mars, then that would indicate that there was a lot more flowing of rock particles on the planet at one point. Yeah? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But we also have to consider what a rock has to go through to get from the surface of Mars to earth and the, oh, the yeah. kind of, like if you if you think about properties of the different types of rocks so rocks that have cooled from a lava flow you'd probably expect to be a bit hardier than a sedimentary rock mm. of course that's a very general thing to say and there will definitely be exceptions to that but i would say a sedimentary rock is far less likely to actually make it 
to the Earth's surface. Because something has to hit Mars so hard it blasts a bit of the planet off the surface. Which Without then melting it and turning into yes. an igneous rock. Yes, that, yeah, yeah, that, yes, that's the big issue. Potentially it may have started off as sedimentary but melted due to the impact and therefore being igneous again? Is that a way of thinking about it? Not really. Okay. Not really. <laughs> if we if we get a, an igneous rock that's come from Mars, you can see the igneous processes, the evidence of those igneous processes that happened within it, and they would have happened on the surface. So if, if a rock has sort of been melted by an impact, you probably wouldn't expect that to, to come all the way to Earth. There's quite an intricate process that is the impact cratering process, and very specific, like a distance from where the impact happens will create the rocks that will be flung off the surface that come to the Earth. So it's quite a complicated process and one that I'm still kind of getting to grips with. Mm. <laughs> and that's that's after studying for for many many years and becoming a doctor of astrogeology. We haven't got time, I assume, to go through the whole thing on a thirty minute podcast. I'm guessing not this time. No, fair, not. <laughs> fair enough. So the sedimentary rocks and other rocks probably don't, would just fall apart. They just they wouldn't make it to Earth. That's it. So it takes something as as hard as an igneous rock to make it to Earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said before, we do have one rock from Mars that would be considered sedimentary. It's, oh, called a, wow. it's, it's called a breccia. So it's got lots of what we call clasts, which are like shards of other material, like other different rock types, all sort of squished together in this rock, but it's pretty solidified. It's like a layered sandstone that you might think of that potentially you could break apart fairly easily. It's pretty solid. So that's, but that's our only meteorite from Mars that's come that we would consider as a sedimentary rock. Okay. Well, that's, that's Mars. So it seems like Mars, that would indicate that Mars once had a liquid on its surface or some sort of process that could create sedimentary rocks, which is maybe in the past out of the ocean or something. But so we always talk about Mars. Everyone talks about Mars. Let's talk about Venus, because Venus is pretty horrible. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, does Venus have igneous rocks and different sorts of rocks as well? My understanding is that Venus just has igneous rocks. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's hard so to it's stop hard. things melting there. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit toasty, isn't it? Toasty. Um, <laughs> it's like somewhere in the, like 600 degrees Celsius or something like that, in that ballpark. It's ridiculous. It's yeah. ludicrous. Yeah, and there's not a lot of ways to get rid of its heat either. So on Earth, we have this constant moving of plates, and then we have magma moving upwards towards the Earth's surface. It erupts on the surface, and hello, we've got heat dissipation happening. And we don't have that on Venus. So it's kind of like a pressurized container that's continuously being... Oh. <laughs> and it, it has nothing to escape to. And so the theory behind that is that every now and then Venus will recreate its surface and there'll be this complete change of, of Venus's surface. <laughs> hang on, hang on. <laughs> recreate its surface. So do you mean destroy itself and just start again? I mean, it's probably a lot less catastrophic than I made it sound. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but because we can't see that there's any, there's no plate tectonics on, on Venus. And we, so we're like, how, how does that heat dissipate? And there's some sort of discussion that I'm actually not very familiar with about why the surface of Venus is a bit strange. And the idea behind it is that every now and then the heat will just build up to a point where it, it kind of resurfaces itself. Wow. Okay. So it paves itself over with, with extruded rock. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think, um, uh, I've never actually worked on Venus because I, I work on meteorites primarily. So 
if I have a rock from there, then I'm like, cool, this is fun. But uh, <laughs> if I don't have a rock from there, which we don't from Venus. Are they, um, yes, oh, we don't. We don't we have Venusian rocks. Interesting. No, we don't. Yeah, this is kind of going back to what I learned when I was an undergrad. Okay. Can I ask why we have Martian rocks? And we have a number of them blasted from Mars to Earth. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we have Venusian rocks? blasted to earth is it because it's bigger and it holds on to its rocks or is it because it's closer to the sun and therefore uh, 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 <laughs> the rocks <laughs> might be more likely to go to the giant the gravitational gravitational yeah. field rather yes. than the little tiny one yeah. i mean probably, probably um i feel like it's probably a combination of those things also if we think about the atmosphere of venus it's mm. quite thick and it's quite dense so maybe that plays a part in sort of stopping the rocks from getting quite as far. Yeah, I think, but I think it's a combination of, of all those things, really. I would love a, a Venusian rock. That would be really yeah. fun. I, I imagine wo- most of the rocks that come off Mars are from very fast, very big things plummeting through what little atmosphere there is and hitting the surface, blowing things up. So if you've got a really thick atmosphere, you're going to need a much bigger thing to come much, much faster to get it all the way down through the atmosphere and knock things up through the thick atmosphere as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so, yeah. Okay, so that's – all right, so we need a Venusian rock. Everyone, find a Venusian rock. How would you even know? That's the question. If I was walking out, if I was in the desert uh, living in Perth and I was walking around in the nearby desert I found a rock on the ground, how would I know that it was a Venusian rock or a Martian rock? It, would it something that you go, oh, my goodness, that's obviously not Earth, or would I have no chance as a layperson? There's things that you can do to figure it out, but usually we would find a rock. We would find a black rock because when it's coming through our atmosphere, it's burning, right? So it's, <laughs> right, when it's, yes. The area around it is burning. We'll go with that. So when it hits the ground, it kind of looks like it's been left on a barbecue for too long, and it's just kind of got this burnt crust, and that's what we call an ablation crust. And that's pretty characteristic of a meteorite. But until we kind of cut it open, there's really no way of us telling what kind of meteorite it is and then figuring out where we think it came from. I mean, if I if I go back to Mars, we had this group of, of rocks that we now know to be from Mars. But at the time, we were like, well, where the heck does this come from? We don't know. And it wasn't until they measured gas bubbles that were in one of the meteorites that we had. And it happened to match the measured atmospheric composition that one of the landers i think oh my made. goodness and then we were like oh look at that it's i mean I rock. this was probably before <laughs> i was doing science i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yes that's okay that must be mind-blowing when they first worked it out they're like wait this did not come from earth this rock came from a whole different planet in our solar system somehow made it to us yeah. that's uh, that's mind-blowing that's just i yes i still can't get over that now your expertise is in asteroids you were saying before So what's the difference between rocks on an asteroid compared to rocks on Earth or Mars or Venus? We have to remember that asteroids are typically much smaller than our terrestrial planets, and there is a lot of them. And they're kind of like the leftovers of when our solar system was first forming. So the way that they came together, it's still kind of the accretion side of things. So little bits of dust all sticking together eventually will squish down to become more of a solid planetary body. But because they're quite tiny, they don't go through this process of differentiation, which is when we have the heavier elements fall into the center of the planetary body, which is why we have like an iron core or a metallic core on Earth and some of the terrestrial planets. Denser things fall to the center, basically heat up, melt and go to the center. Yeah. 
absolutely. Okay. And that's um, because and- they're melted. Like that's be- that, it's not that they they're me- they got to melt first, right? And then the heavier stuff drops to the bottom, like cream and water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You couldn't have a bunch of b- bits of lead and a bunch of bits of talc, and then sort of. <laughs> no. I guess if you shake them up, they're still going to be sort of mixed together. Uh-huh. And so I imagine that most meteorites don't get enough density to form enough friction to melt. So what? What happens? So in that case, we have undifferentiated asteroids. So you end up with this sort of concoction of the lighter minerals and the more dense minerals. So you end up with metal bits in your Mm. meat, essentially. But that can kind of help guide us to say, okay, well, this probably came from an undifferentiated asteroid if there's metallic elements to it. But there's certain meteorites that we get that are, they just look like lumps of metal. Mm. And so we know they have to have come from a differentiated asteroid because otherwise you wouldn't get this hugely dense lump of metal hurtling towards Earth. So there must be an asteroid so large that it differentiated, and so you had a metal bit, and then in the end it broke up for some whatever, you got hit by something or it fell apart or something, and and that part that came to Earth was the metal bit or the rock bit or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, an example of that is Vesta. So Vesta is a differentiated asteroid. And, I mean, it's quite large. Like, it's, it's, I think it's over 500 kilometers in diameter. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I mean, that's not, it doesn't sound giant, like, if we think of the scale of, of Earth, but still quite substantial. Mm. Give it credit where it's due. <laughs> <laughs> but, obviously, we know Vesta is still in existence. And so, if we get a metallic meteorite, that potentially comes from an asteroid that may lo- no longer exist. Right. Okay. I'm trying to remember, Pluto is only about a, a, over 1,000 kilometers in radius. So you're talking about something, Vesta's big, that's big compared to a small dwarf planet or a large dwarf planet. I'm just trying to give a context of size. I think I'm right there with Pluto, I'm not too sure, but it's, it's about in that ballpark. So even though it's small, it's not it's not small, small. It's, it's still, it's, I know I'm sort of rambling there a bit, I'm just trying to whip my head around the sizes. So Vesta, you think Vesta, or the idea is Vesta came from something even larger? Oh, not necessarily. Like Vesta, the asteroid itself, is just an accumulation of all the materials that, you know, were were around the the area, I suppose, at the time Mm. of accretion, so when our solar system started forming. But there are other asteroids that probably were differentiated. But then because we have samples of what would have been the core of that asteroid, is it likely that that asteroid is still whole out there somewhere? If we've got a part of the centre... Yes, I see what you're saying. It's a Basmus Blast. Okay, all right. So, get my head around this. Good, good. So, if I flew to the asteroid belt, and this is where I'm getting down to with, with space rocks, if I flew to an asteroid that was smaller than Vesta, was undifferentiated, and I took my space pick and I picked on the side of it and, and you know got a bit of it off and held it in my hand, what properties would that rock have? You would look at it and say it looks like a sedimentary rock. Okay, so it would look like a sedimentary rock. Yeah, um, so we've got, um, so from, for example, the Hayabusa 2 mission and the OSIRIS-REx missions, they've kind of got to their asteroids and they're like, cool, it looks like a pile of rubble. Um, (laughs) Like, it's so cool. Like, oh my gosh, it is so cool. But it's what we would imagine many asteroids to look like. And that's because that's like goes back to the processes that you were talking about at the very beginning, (laughs) defined by the processes that formed it. And so what's happened on these asteroids is it's primarily built from accretion. So if you imagine tiny little specks of dust still coming together because of static forces and they'll break up and come back together again and eventually they'll build and build and build to be a larger body. 
but the leading hypothesis, some people would disagree with me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> These bodies used to be like fairy floss. So oh. well, like really <laughs> fluffy. So super fluffy. There's lots of space in between, <laughs> space in space, between all of the little particles of dust, if you like. And then over time, through the processes, which I will get into, that has condensed down into more of a solid body. But that's still very much sedimentary processes because okay. everything oh, wow. is together a little bit like sedimentary rocks on earth kind of are accreting but not in a non-gravity scenario yeah okay. and you were saying that they, they come together through static forces so that the electrical charge is actually making them attract like a little bit magnetic and popping together is that right yeah, I'm fairly, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But if you imagine in our asteroid belt, we had all this random material rotating, rotating, orbiting, mm. that word. Um, <laughs> then, um, and it's all kind of all separate. Eventually, they're going to they're gonna start to clump together. They're going to kick together. off electrons and then sort of like it's winter. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Very dry in space. Infamously dry in space, Greg. <laughs> yes, that's where a lot of lotion, it's true. It's going to make sure your lotion's on, otherwise your skin dries out very fast in space. <laughs> and so over time, we actually, this is where part of my, my PhD research came in, the way it got from being this beautiful fairy floss-like body. Beautiful? I don't know. I wasn't here. Probably beautiful. <laughs> We're not shaming Mastro for what it was doing. We're fine. We're cool with it. It's all good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we think that over time, if we consider our asteroid belt, they're likely to have bumped into one another. And so over time, that compression down into a more solid planetary body came from little gentle collisions between these fairy floss type bodies. Oh, yes. Okay. And so right. that's getting rid of those little pore spaces, squishing it all down until it becomes a more solid rock. And if we go back to what we were saying about, oh, sedimentary rocks probably aren't hardy enough to make it to the Earth's surface, asteroids, sure, they're sedimentary rocks, but they have been compressed down a fair amount over time and to make them a consolidated rock, if that makes there, sense. Yes, and there's, I can't remember the name of it. There's, that, there's a famous one that the Rosetta went to recently or semi-recently, and it looks like two, looks like a duck. It kind of looks like two asteroids of kind of kissing in the centre. Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, so P, P67 or P... Oh, goodness, I can't remember the name of it now. But uh, it's, it's some, some designation. And if you see, we'll put pictures in the show notes, but it looks like it does look like two asteroids have slowly come into orbit and then finally landed, but not crushed together, just kind of touching each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They're like now, you know. Yeah, they're friends. They're good. Uh, you said about rubble. Does that mean, so if I went there, great, I pick up... That's a bit of sedimentary rock. I understand that. I can see it in my head how it's working now. As rubble, if I drove my red tesla space car <laughs> through the center of it would it just explode like boxes in, in a in a in a car chase in a movie or would i just compact and explode myself uh, you'd, you'd probably be hard pressed to do that i think you'd probably explode yourself like they're pretty okay. hard so it's not a rubble pile it's 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 undifferentiated bits and pieces but they they are quite solidly together yeah, like on the surface, you'd look at it and be like, oh, that just looks like a pile of rubble. But I imagine as soon as you go a little bit deeper than the, the very surface, you would find pretty solid, pretty solid. Okay, right. Okay. So I feel I've had that answer now. It's going to be almost sedimentary unless it's large enough to differentiate. And then you'll start to get igneous kind of rocks on the surface as it's all sort of melted and fall and, and become extruded rock. If it, or if it, is it extruded rock? I don't know. Would you call it? Is it extruding from anything? I can't think of what it's extruding from <laughs> probably not i actually don't know i haven't thought about that what would we 
<laughs> well, you'd need to have pressure inside it for something to extrude. Yes, it would have to be hot, I guess, inside. It'd have to be liquid inside, as in heated up, and then it would break out of crust. Yeah. I'm so yeah. is gravity the only force that's sort of pulling these tiny bits of debris together to to st- stick them and turn them into sedimentary rock? Or is there more going on? So it's not necessarily just gravity. And actually, that's a little bit more contested, I think, which I, I dug into in my PhD, which is the only reason I know that. Cool. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people were saying, no, it's just gravity that's brought them together. But realistically, gravity isn't going to be a big enough force to bring those tiny bodies to make them solid. And so we did a few experiments and we went and looked at a a couple of different meteorites and we compared it to what we think would happen if you have a shockwave traveling through asteroid type material. Mm -hmm. Um, And we found that if these different asteroids that were kind of fairy floss like were just hitting one another over time and that's squishing it down, we think that's the driving force. Oh, Um, wow. So random impact over time. Yeah, but, but I just I'm I'm trying to think now because we get the idea. I know you watch Star Wars and those sort of movies, and asteroids are you have to be careful. You, you you know you turn left wrong and you crash into an asteroid, but they're much further apart than that. They're thousands of kilometers apart. The space is stupidly big, uh-huh. and I'm guessing they don't hit each other very often. No, but if we also consider that back when this was actually happening, which was at the start of our solar system, there were likely a lot more asteroids. Oh, of course. Okay. So more asteroids. Now there's less because they're all clumped together or blown each other apart. Okay. Yeah. So if I had a sword fight with someone with a stick of fairy floss, <laughs> after a couple of strikes, it's going to stop being a nice big cloud thing and it's going to really quite quickly turn into like a pointy barb of sugar. And that's, that's, that yeah. sounds like pretty much how these things get come together. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not a valid weapon, but... Sure. At, at some this, point, after enough collisions, that's going to be dense and sharp. Or, Dan, you're fighting a diabetic. Oh. There you go. No? Okay, too far. Okay, too far. Too far. I'm yes. always fighting diabetics. Oh. oh, poor diabetics. That's why you win. Now, I actually feel it's the first time in my life, I've been thinking about this question for a long time, so Dr. Lucy, thank you very much. I actually feel I have an understanding of what an asteroid, the other sorts of rock. So we didn't, we don't have to invent our new type of rock. We, we can actually call it a sedimentary rock or igneous rocks. I'm so excited about that. So thank you very much for that. Pleasure. Yeah, I, now that blows my yeah. mind because all through school, you think of igneous rocks being the start of a rock's life. Rocks start as igneous and then they become sedimentary and then the sedimentary mixes with igneous and becomes metamorphic and so there's the sedimentary ones that's the that's the girly useless rock down the bottom that gets what? reset when you what? when you heat it up and no sorry girly useless no. is not a combination no. of words no I, no, no sorry i forgot what decade i was in yes yes dan <laughs> okay at any rate so you've got the, the sedimentary rocks down the the shallow end of the pool and then they get reset by igneous but it turns out sedimentary is where it all kicks off in the first place. It yeah. seems to be- and I've got a new, newfound appreciation for sedimentary. I think there's also a rock cycle down. I don't think it's as simple as one goes to the other. I think then, you know, metamorphic can heat up and become igneous again. And they can, it's, it's a more complicated. Your teachers lied to you, Dan, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's probably they, when they were they, horrified by your, by your sexism. No, they instilled that in me. I'm still trying <laughs> to get right. rid of it. It's, yeah, it's true. It must have been, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was a product of my environment. 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, now, Dr. Lucy, I was looking in your, your bio and I saw something where I just went, I don't know what this is. And it sounds like the most exciting thing in the world. It says that you work with something called the Desert Fireball Network. Yeah. That sounds like the most exciting thing on the planet. Can you please tell me what the Desert Fireball Network is, please? Yeah, of course. We are the Australian Desert Fireball Network specifically, and we are moving into the Global Fireball Network, which I'll get to in a minute. The whole idea is that we have cameras out in the desert, also in some non-desert areas. We have quite a few around Perth, for example, that look up at the sky all night, every night, and they're taking photos all night, every night, completely automatically. And we are looking for shooting stars or fireballs, which they're... So they're kind of interchangeable with the idea that often we will see a shooting star and sometimes there might be a rock on the ground somewhere at the end of it. And the beauty of being able to take photos of it and multiples of our cameras taking photos of it and seeing it from different angles, we can figure out where on the ground it might have landed and go and look for it. Oh, my goodness. If you get enough photos of it flying through the atmosphere, you can then triangulate its position and therefore say it landed in that person's back garden. Let's go get that asteroid. I mean, probably not quite that specific. We don't tend to go looking in people's back gardens. (laughs) (laughs) You're missing out. (laughs) If we think about where all the people are in Australia, the likelihood of it actually falling in someone's backyard versus falling somewhere in the desert. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty unlikely. Right. <laughs> yes. Let's face it. Statistically, if you say where is it in Australia, if you say in a desert, you're, you're statistically correct. You're covered, going- right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we found a few rocks using this system, which is wow. cool. I, I got to go out and have the experience of doing meteorite hunting. We didn't find it on the trips that I went on, but the whole process is really quite interesting. You go as though you're searching for, I suppose, a missing person or something like that. And you're combing the landscape in a straight line, everybody mm. looking side to side, forwards, backwards, to see if you can find this rock, which is really wow. cool. You're saying before you're looking for uh, something with a burnt outer shell because it's come through the atmosphere. So you're looking for a black lump of something. Yeah, and usually quite matte as well. Like we will find a lot of rocks. One of the areas that I actually went hunt meteorite searching had a lot of black rocks, but they were super shiny. So that was fun. Usually it's red deserts looking for black rocks. Should be fairly simple. But the area we were in was just filled with other black rocks. Oh, no. So you were you were looking for a, a needle in a haystack made of needles. Absolutely. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you went out there, you just went, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? I mean, I will be honest. I, I sat there and went, well, this is going to be challenging. Um, <laughs> we've taken it all in our stride. But the, the real beauty of taking those photos is that, A, we can triangulate, so work out where in the sky fireball was burning to and from and therefore predict where it landed on the ground, if it landed on the ground, if it didn't burn up before it reached the ground, which is also something we can we can look into. We can also look back with that trajectory and work out what its orbit was before it fell to Earth. Wow. Whoa. (laughs) That's the response I was looking for, Dan. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Hang on. But wait, but surely coming through the atmosphere, it would jink around and get pushed left and right and up and down. And it wouldn't, I wouldn't thought that was vaguely possible. No, it definitely is. Absolutely is. It's coming in pretty fast when it comes into our atmosphere. And once you get down to the point where wind is going to be moving this rock around, sure, that's that's where your uncertainty kind of comes in. 
Um, but my understanding of it is that the trajectory, so its path as it's coming through our atmosphere, is something we can use to track back to its orbit before it came to Earth. And then over time, like this has been, we've been doing this for years. I can't even think how many years, but it's been a long time. We've built this beautiful database of where all the fireballs that we see in Australia, where all the rocks that are responsible for those fireballs are coming from in our solar system. So oh, got, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's so cool. It's so, uh, yeah. So you'd say we believe this came off Vesta or this came off Mars or something like that by, by looking at the fireball. And uh, is that right? Yeah, potentially. And we, even though we don't have a rock on the ground, we can still look back on and track that orbit. And so obviously we get a huge amount that have all originated from the same meteor shower source if you like it's pretty cool we can't be quite this specific as saying this definitely came from Vesta although when you get the rock and cut it open you can say yes this came from Vesta so but- it's it's another layer level of, of evidence so you say well from the trajectory it could have come from that general area and now looking at the geology slash chemistry we can now say that's probably from that thing in space yes yeah and also before these fireball networks, because this isn't the first fireball network, but it is the first in Australia. And it's kind of, I think it's the, the largest one in the world, if I'm mm. not mistaken. I'm happy to be corrected there, but I'm fairly certain it is. There are very few meteorites that we have that we actually have that orbital information for. Mm. So we have we have something like 60,000 meteorites in our collections. Wow. <laughs> this... more, that could have been from like 10 years ago, that value. <laughs> my head so it's probably a lot more by now well don't um, put them all in the same place because eventually you'll end up with just one yeah right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. um so few of them actually have orbital information attached to them and it just mm. adds much more to the story of where they came from how they've changed over time what their path was in getting to earth and then people like me getting to to chop them open and study them in a respectful manner of course of course now that feels me feel a little bit of worry because you said we go oh this thing fell from the sky and it hit the ground and we don't really know where it came from obviously it came from space it came from us we don't we we haven't cataloged where it came from that means there could be things out there that we don't know are coming roughly towards us (laughs) that we should probably know about Oh, if they're large enough, then yeah, we do know about them. Nothing okay. Oh, okay. They're, 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 you've, they've got us covered. I'm mm. not sure they, they would do anything about it, but they know about them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't good. Scope to do anything about them. It could be like Armageddon. Which, <laughs> I don't know. But like the, the smaller things, it's not really a big deal in terms of safety for us mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're tiny when they mm. when they land. They could come in like the size of a small car and they'd land maybe just smaller than the size of a washing machine. Oh, fine. That's okay. So what would we see if we were standing around and something the size of a washing machine hit the ground? Is it just going to look like like someone dropped it off the top of their house? Or is that just going to come in with like a big fireball explosion type thing? I guess how far away would you want to be to survive it? A a washing machine sized thing. Yeah. <laughs> Fairly far. Like, you probably feel vibration <laughs> when it hits the earth. But in term, it's not going to, of course, depending on how fast it's coming in, the angle it's coming in at, mm-hmm. all these, these different things, I don't feel as though we're going to die. Unless That's right. Is it, it. it going to leave one of those cool sci-fi craters, though, that you find Superman's crib in? <laughs> probably not. Probably not. No. no. Oh. Yeah. Often, often we'll get meteorites, uh, well, rocks that come in 
and they're burning through our um, through our atmosphere and they might be huge but then we often get ones that will break up in our atmosphere and so mm. it ends up kind of raining little bits of rock which is fairly cool it's a rock that I work on a lot called Allende which landed in Mexico 50 years ago this year actually we're celebrating its birthday happy birthday um, Allende right um and there was two <laughs> metric tons of it that fell Oh, okay. Wow. So you would have been out. You could have been out in the desert and just seen sort of little kicks of sand everywhere, like someone was spraying it with a machine gun. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of it, and that's why a lot of people work on it because it's so available. Ooh. So why wouldn't you? But uh, yeah, it's not necessarily catastrophic. It's not like dinosaur killing situation. Yeah. Mm, um, that's- that's a bit bigger, also, I guess. You know, people have, in the past, I don't recall when, there was a lady who, she was sleeping and a meteorite fell through her roof and she ended up with <laughs> giant bruise, like, on her hip. And also there's a very famous car that a rock went from space, went through the taillight of that car when it was parked. And so now so that car is worth a lot of money, but nobody dies. <laughs> <laughs> there's like seven and a half billion humans on the planet and we've been here for quite a long time. And in all that time spread across the world, We've got two instances of one person being hit and one car being hit, and that's yeah. about it. So yeah. really unlikely to be killed by an um, asteroid. Yeah, unless it's big, then, you know, everyone for themselves. Yeah, so the first person who dies from asteroid strike will probably be followed up a fraction of a second later by the second <laughs> person and then the third person. Yeah, I, I feel like that's... that's- quite accurate <laughs> but we'll see like when we see a shooting star or a fireball we'll see it but it's so 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 far up still it's so in, in terms of altitude still really far away and it stops burning a long time before it gets to the ground so if you if you're looking at a shooting star and it's like going west to east then that's that's fine but if you look at a shooting star and it's just getting bigger and not moving anywhere step to the side <laughs> i mean probably probably duck or duck. just hope that there's some really good wind happening that it's gonna when it stops burning the wind will take it elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like sound advice from dr <laughs> lucy foreman on how to survive an asteroid coming straight at you dr lucy is there one thing that you know about asteroids that people need to know that people don't know they're cool they're really cool <laughs> and they deserve our attention just because they're little doesn't mean they're not important. But genuinely, they can provide so much information about how our solar system started forming at the very, very start. Because not a lot has changed for, for those asteroids compared to something like Earth, where we have active plate tectonics. The surface is constantly changing, albeit at a very small rate, but it's constantly changing. Whereas these asteroids are really beautiful records of how our solar system first started. And that's why I love working on them. And that's why they're really cool. Amazing. Well, Dr. Lucy, I hope you get a lot more asteroids to work on and meteorites to work on, but not in one large chunk. Yeah, me too. Me too. We'll keep going (laughs) for the small ones, hey? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks once again to Dr. Lucy Foreman for teaching us all about space rocks, the magic of space rocks, the science of space rocks. How amazing they actually are. I learned something, Dan. I love actually fully learning something new, having a question answered. It's one of the best parts of doing this podcast. Oh, yeah. No, I'm super pleased that I can now talk about that stuff. Like outer space fairy floss? Love it. Yeah. that's right. And we can just say, well, 
Dr. Lucy Foreman says, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, it's not just these idiots. It's people who actually know what they're talking about. That's kind of cool. And, and knowing what we're talking about is such a wonderful thing, something that sometimes we don't. And therefore, we have a segment called Walk of Shame. In uh, this week's Walk of Shame. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I got my inbox filled up, dude. I, I, got, I got some. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a couple. I got a couple. Okay, I got. Okay. Greg, you were talking about putting the International Space Station underwater, <laughs> and that it could only survive to a depth of ten meters underwater because ten meters underwater <laughs> increases the pressure by one atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Jack Dooney, aka Evil One, we finally found out his name. Yeah, and got him. And got li- him. And listen today, he's fallen into our trap. And listener Dave both want to point out that 10 metres underwater is in total two atmospheres of (laughs) pressure. You appear to have forgotten about the one atmosphere of pressure provided by the atmosphere. Yes, you see, where I come from, we don't have an atmosphere. So so in space, zero atmospheres on the surface of Earth, it's one. 10 metres underwater, it's two. I love this. I just listeners. Dan and I don't normally talk about our walk of shames. We keep them secret and spring them on ourselves. But out of context, out of nowhere, weeks ago, I get a a text message from Dan saying, "Where did you read that the space station can handle two atmospheres of pressure?" And I was super confused because I didn't say that at all. And I was and I was. I didn't understand what was going on. So I was like, I didn't say that, did I? That's a weird thing for me to say. And I went and checked my notes and went, no, it definitely says one atmosphere of pressure. And Dan wrote back going, oh, you, well, then we've got something to talk about in the future. And as he wrote that, my brain went, you idiot. It's <laughs> and, I, and I worked it out as he wrote the text message. And I was like, and I went and did it. I went, oh, my God, I forgot the atmosphere. Because <laughs> I, I had to check because I'm like, I'm sure he just misspoke. He can't be that dumb. Guess what, listeners? <laughs> yes. It, and what's really, really, what's, I went, and it's just it's the, the funny part. But look, you got me, absolutely evil one. You got me, and I forgot the other person's name. I'm listen so sorry. Dave. And listen to Dave. You absolutely nailed me to the floor on it. This goes to show that sometimes working things out in the back of a napkin, not the best way of doing things. Yeah, but this got me thinking. If we did get rid of the atmosphere, then it would be one atmosphere of pressure 10 metres underwater. But it would be strange to get underwater because the surface of the Oiland would be silently boiling. Yes. Yes. Si- a, yes. Silent because there's no medium for sound to travel through. Well, uh, it wouldn't be silent. It wouldn't be silent in the water because you would you would hear the surface, uh, the water, the sound would pass through the the water because that would be a medium. Yeah, but for we sound haven't got there yet. We can't. We, we, oh, okay. it, it would be very weird to go, go underwater because the oh, ocean would be yes. silently boiling before you went underwater. Yes. Okay, so there's no yes. medium for sound to travel through. Anything suspended in the air would no longer be suspended. Birds would drop faster than their usual terminal velocity. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. you would have these birds that were hitting the ground at, like, crazy speeds. Are you saying, Dan, that losing the atmosphere above the Earth would be really bad? That's well, the sky would turn black. There's no particles mm. to scatter light. Mm. Your eardrums would pop. Your <laughs> saliva would boil. Uh, you, you wouldn't be able to breathe. You couldn't breathe. There's nothing to breathe. If you had an oxygen mask, you couldn't breathe. We think of our diaphragm pulling oxygen in and pushing it out, but the pressure of the atmosphere actually helps us breathe. Your lungs Mm -hmm. inflate, and this drops the air pressure slightly. 
So the air pressure outside the lungs pushes air into the lungs, but your mask would lose oxygen faster out the side of the mask. If the mask was tight, the pressure in your mask needs to be at least 8 psi to force the air into your lungs. But then you'd have to breathe out again and you're fighting against that pressure. It would be a real balancing act. A bubble helmet might make it a bit easier. Yeah. Pound per square inch of force, I just look up very quickly, is about 55,000 pascals, 55 kilopascals of force. Is that anyway, a lot? It's, it's super, it's, well, it's, pound, it's eight pounds per square inch. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, checks out. But, but we, we, we yell at Americans for using dumb measurements. We probably shouldn't use PSI. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, baffling. That, it's all very exciting. You'd get a terrible sunburn. There is nothing to block the full force of Chad's horror. Mm. You'd get cosmic rays like no one's business. Oh, yeah. It would be, you'd, it would be very you'd still have the Van Allen belt to, 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 to yeah. avert uh, space flares. That's, a little bit. Yeah, and the Van Helsing bit. belt that averts space vampires. It's <laughs> not a thing. That's not, not a thing. thing. That's not a thing. Uh, a new atmosphere would form. The water would boil into water vapour, but not long mm. enough to replace the atmosphere. Just long enough to form enough pressure to stop the boiling. Mm. The temperature mm. would drop at night and everything would freeze. Mm. Radiation would break down the water vapour into oxygen and hydrogen, but because of the amount of water vapour, we'd probably end up with a runaway greenhouse gas effect overheating the earth and turning it into another venus hooray we would have very little nitrogen but it would slowly get replenished by meteors (laughs) so probably not a worthwhile trade-off to make it so that you didn't have to walk the walk of shame (laughs) got it i'll won't press the button then fine fine Putting the button away, beep. It's okay, fine. We're not putting. It. Wait, that was the put it away button. I really are these two buttons. One is the. Did you just hear a button. beep? Ah, no, no, it's no, probably no. nothing. Retirement's well, well, gonna be great. <laughs> one beep. One, one button I've got here is destroys the atmosphere, and the other button I, right next to it stops me from pressing the button that destroys the atmosphere. I think I pressed the right one. I'm sure. I'm sure by the time the pod comes out, it'll be fine. We'll press the other button and see if you can or not. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Dan, you also need to walk the walk of shame. What? Uh, Janet, uh, in episode 155, Dan says that maple syrup is made from tree sap, just like sugar cane. Sugar cane is not a tree, Dan. It's a grass. Here we go. Important. I see. You but, see, yeah. But, but it's, it's still tree sap. Like no, it's, it's still not a sap. grass sap. It's, it's grass oh, sap, not tree sap. What? You, 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 you said that you came from tree sap. You said maple syrup is made from tree sap, just like sugar cane. Sugar cane is made from not made from tree sap. It's, it's made grass from sap. Well, it's also also it's not sap really. It, it's sugars. I guess oh, that's that's probably another walk of shame inside a walk of shame, isn't it? No, look, yeah, I'm just going to take this walk of shame. <laughs> Excellent. Phew. Excellent. Son well, that, of must be gun. that must be it. That must be it then. No more walks of shame for anyone. Oh, oh. Greg, you were so cavalier when you mentioned this next one. Excellent. You asserted that a lamprey is an eel. It is not oh. an eel. And like, even when what you said it? it, I'm like, there's no way he's right about that. What? What is it then? What this is it? was it's pointed a- out by Janet and Steve E. It is a fish. It's a jawless fish, and oh. humans are more closely related to it than any other fish. Oh, that's lovely. So it's not an eel. Oh, it's honestly not an eel. There you go. They, it's 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 like koala bear. They call them lamprey eels. It's a mm. dumb thing we shouldn't call them. Okay, I've well there you go. I stand correct. 
Now, do you remember Larry Gray from Maximum Detroit? Oh, I love Maximum Detroit. That's where yeah. Robocop comes from. Yep. Turns yeah, out MD doesn't stand for Maximum Detroit. Uh, it's actually code for Maryland. So oh. thanks very much for ruining that moment of whimsy, Larry. <laughs> Can you please join your members of Legislative Assembly or whatever crazy democracy you have over there and change Maryland, Maryland, probably named after some British queen, I'm going to guess, walk of shame probably, but I'm going to guess it's named after a British queen, a Mary, Queen yeah. Mary, and change it to Maximum Detroit. You, yeah. can, you can do this. You can you can do this. You hate British people. You, you had a whole war about this thing. Just, oh, man, it's going to be great. I wonder if Maryland is named after Queen Mary. Oh, dear. Yeah, oh, no. probably. Oh. oh, wasn't there another Mary? Wasn't there, didn't, wasn't there a Mary who was married to one of them uh, white-haired dudes, the Founding Fathers? You don't think that they named a state after one of the Founding Fathers' wives, do you? That sounds unlikely. Oh, good point. Good point. They hate, they hate women. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Larry went further down the lamprey rabbit hole. There is a class of vertebrates that includes lampreys and hagfish. They are thought to be a distinct evolutionary line from the jawed fishes. Even so, lampreys are in fact considered fish. So, Dan was correct. My f- my my favorite three words on the podcast. Dan yes. was correct to bring them up, and Greg was incorrect to say that since all jawed vertebrates share a common ancestor, all fish come from that ancestor. He states lampreys are not eels. Greg's statement implies that he believes that eels are not fish. True eels are indeed fish. Oh, bloody hell. Of the order anguliforms in the class of jawed bony fishes. So this leaves the question, what the fuck is a fish? (laughs) <laughs> so fish are in a group that is paraphyletic. So mammals oh, all have all a common... <laughs> yeah, these fish got legless. The... <laughs> so mammals all have a common ancestor that is the oh, first mammal. Yes? You have to be careful there because fish, as far as I'm aware, like the, we, the fish we evolved from anyway are the four-lobed ones. They're technically, they do have leggy kind of things. They're the little finny things. Not That's when, what made them kind of... Not when they get oh, all yeah. paraphyletic. No, but they get paraphyletic. That's very true. Okay, uh. so mammals all have a common ancestor that is the first mammal. Same for birds. What this means is that all reptiles and mammals and birds and fish all have a common ancestor. You get rid of all the birds, all the mammals, and all the reptiles, and what's left is a fish. Mm. So, mm. when we thought that there was no such thing as a fish, it's all fish. Almost everything is a goddamn fish. <laughs> so we should change the pod- they should change the podcast to everything is a goddamn fish. What podcast? Oh, I, the, the, the everything is a goddamn fish podcast. <laughs> now, I've just gone and quickly checked. I have checked. I'm not going to walk a shame myself. Maryland is indeed named after the English queen, Henrietta Maria, known in England as Queen Mary, who is the wife of King Charles I. Not the Queen Mary I thought it was going to be, but what the heck. That's fine. So there you go. Yeah. It was. See, don't name your bloody state after some random queen of England, America. Yeah. You should call it Maximum Detroit. Uh, I'm not sure that Detroit isn't the name of another queen of England. Lady Detroit. <laughs> lady, lady, probably a French one. De Troit. De Troit. De Troit. De Troit. De Troit. Moving on. Yeah. Many people got in contact, but the person, uh, Ter- uh, Terence McManus got in contact with us first. He was the first one. Sent it to both of us. 
And everyone seems to listen to our podcast, listens to another podcast called The Last Podcast on the Left, because they all wrote exactly the same, almost line for line. I like to think that the people from Last Podcast on the Left wrote the email and then just told everyone to send it to us because it was almost perfectly – it's like a form letter. <laughs> it's what I'm trying to say. It was quite incredible. Yeah. The fact that you mentioned that the Jim Jones served Kool-Aid at the Jonestown Massacre uh, to kill all his followers. Actually, it wasn't Kool-Aid. It was the uh, was off-brand, off-brand rip-off Flavor-Aid. Oh. So, so technically it shouldn't be – uh, so, so as it says here, although drinking the Kool-Aid has indeed become part of the cultural lexicon, it is nevertheless technically incorrect, which is, after all, the worst kind of incorrect. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the irritating thing is I knew that fact. Oh, okay. But I forgot. To, I didn't think to bring it up when I was, when we were discussing it. Oh, well, then uh, that's... Then, then can you imagine, us- though, because like, we were having a whimsical idea about what was going on down the Kool-Aid company at that point. But imagine them finding out that information and just going. And so, what was the what's the knockoff brand called? Flavor Aid. Flavor Aid. Imagine they're being there like, "Oh, did you hear? They poisoned them with Flavor Aid." It's like, "Oh shit! Hate to be those guys." <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does it say in that newspaper? I, I would like to see the stats on whether it did actually stop people drinking Kool Aid. There's occasionally the scares about we found a razor blade in a in a peach or something weird like that, and then everyone stops eating peaches. I don't think it even slows me down. I think I'm like, oh well, got to go for some reason. Might as well be brain to brain injuries from uh, razor peaches. That seems like a fun way to go. Maybe, maybe that's just me. Uh, do you have any others? Uh, yeah, I do. Oh yeah, let's go. Okay, Steve Stewart. Episode 119. What the heck? That's a long time ago. That's a couple of years ago now. (laughs) But he does have the exact second that you said it, so very (laughs) useful. Greg refers to solder as a glue. Uh He said, based on the wisdom of Wikipedia, I don't think solder is a glue by definition. Possibly it could be considered an adhesive. Now, we've discussed a lot of glues on the podcast. We've discussed epoxy, starch, superglue, even meat glue that bonds meat to each other, which is horrifying implications. It's how babies are made. It's how babies are made. Glue is a liquid adhesive, is the, is the definition in Wikipedia. But what does okay. that mean? Is hot glue liquid adhesive? Because it's, it's solid. You've got to heat it up mm. first. Mm. So if There's that's the no case... There's such thing as an adhesive, Dan. That's the, the podcast about this. <laughs> if that's the case... Lava could be referred to as glue because you could heat that up till it becomes a liquid and then cool it down and it'll stick stuff together. So clag must freeze at some point. So glue just seems to be a nice, friendly human term for certain adhesives that are easy to use. Uh Now, solder is used because it is conductive. There is conductive wire glue. Ooh. Its conductive particles are suspended in an adhesive gel, but apparently it doesn't work very well. I'm very confused. Am I, am I, am I walking or am I not walking? I don't know what's going on now. I don't I, think I, you have to walk. That's yes! A, that's a, because, uh, yeah, yes. if, if glue is a liquid adhesive, well, then you can make solder liquid, and that's kind of the point of it. Excellent. So oh, it's as goodness. much a glue as hot glue is. Oh, thank you, Dan. Oh, thank God for that. And hopefully Ooh. you'll do the same for me. Well, I don't have one anymore. I've got one that's from, for both of us. It's actually not so much a walk of shame as, as a science experiment based on our interview with optometrist Ben, 
So a couple of episodes ago, Dan Spence has written in to say that he had a uh, lens in his eye that had gone. Hang on, let me just find it here. So my good eye has 42-year-old lenses with a normal amount of cataract development for my age. The lens is a bit yellow, but the bad eye has no yellowing whatsoever. As part of my job as an administrative tutor for a university, I used to have to use a black light to check passports and not fake. Now my good eye can see the black light enough for it to pick up the light, but my bad eye picks up much more UV light. So because the lens has been removed, this person, Dan, can see the actual uh, more UV light. So you actually can see it, which is so kind of doing the experiment, kind of. Like it's a pretty good, he's a pretty good uh, candidate because he can see it. He just close one eye cover one eye and see the difference but at the same time you'd you'd want to do a du- some sort of double blind test you'd want yes. to write something on a uh, that some people could that people couldn't see and then have him see it yes yes it's all so we, we can still do the experiment always do the experiment people but thank you dan and just to remind our listeners dan is a very special person for us because he's the person who named the moon you have been listening to dan at smartenough.org and Greg at smartenough.org. If you hear us make a mistake in the walk of shame, uh, you, if you hear Greg make a mistake, send it to dan <laughs> at smartenough.org. And if Dan ever makes a mistake, which is becoming less and less likely, it seems, very upsetting to me, then you send it to greg at smartenough.org. If you would like to support the podcast, you can share us with people on all your social media stuff. You can yeah. also buy a T-shirt by going on to smartenough.org and clicking on the word yeah. T-shirt. You can follow us or something by clicking on the buttons. And if you would like to support us financially, you can drop money into our tip jar or you can put money on Patreon. So you give us money every single month, which is let's see, yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> you could give us two bucks a month, in which case you, you just get good feelings. You give us five bucks a month and we'll read out your name just like I'm about to do. Awesome. So thank you very much to Alana Mitchell, to Steve Eichenhout, to Andrew Potts, to Andrew Whitehurst, to Ava Greenbury, to Lindsay Jenkinson, to Matthew Toy, to Matt Ewers, to Jack Evil One Dooney. Oh, he, he updated it in the Patreon as well. Oh, Gavin, he's so clever. Uh, oh. To Elizabeth Youngkin, to Morden O'Hare, who, sorry, Morden O'Hare, to Phil Phil Holland, to Andrew Trousdale, to Michael Barnes, and to Gary Heather. Thank you all so much for your financial support of the podcast. Thank you very much. It's madness, but we love you for it. Thanks for it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, there are some sickos who have decided to support us on the top tier. Madness. Which involves them giving us 15 bucks a month and they get to be insulted by me on the podcast. Because some people have so much money, they realise that you're just big parasites on society and they need to be punished by someone. And that's you, Dan. Yep. That's my theory. Okay. My running theory. So a couple of these people have said that they're happy to pay the money and they don't need insults, which Hang is... I've just insulted them for free out of the, out of the gate. That's not that's, that's Oh, weird. so are we I done? Cool. All right. <laughs> well, thanks very much for listening. No. Okay. No, no, no. So no, no. it is October. It is. The time for ghouls and ghosts and other Ooh. Super Nintendo games. <laughs> the... Uh, thank you very much to Al Batson, son of bats. And Eric Wilson, son of Wills. 
Uh, uh, wills, inheritance, death, lawyers, spooky. Oh, okay. I was thinking. No, actually, I went to. I went to the uh, was it the journey of the wills, which is what the Star Star Wars was going to be called originally, and therefore that's that's spooky because it's so awful now. Everything's bad. Oh, okay. That was. That was. That was. Oh, that was careful, my... Eric Wilson! You'll be cancelled. <laughs> um. Now the proper insults. Mm-hmm. Mitchell Keita. Both the monster created by Dr. Frankenstein and the monster that was Dr. Frankenstein have discussed it, and they think that Mitchell is the real monster. Mm, mm, very true. Very true. <laughs> okay, Dustin Fallon. Now, if you remember, Dustin has a degree in aeronautical sciences, but he's an assistant manager at Walmart. Mm. So Count Dracula can turn into mist, but Dustin can turn into mist opportunities. Oh, ow! Oh, oh! Okay, That's sad. Tom Seary. Now, the Invisible Man could turn completely invisible and thus completely unnoticeable. He describes mm. this process as going Tom Seary. <laughs> oh, oh! Okay, we're up to Scott Driscoll. Werewolves can be stopped only with a silver bullet. Now, because Scott is horrified by vegetables, he can be stopped with a kitchen bullet. (laughs) And finally, Steve Stewart. Steve Stewart, I talked to your ex and they said you've got a swamp thing. Ew. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. Ew. If you would like to learn anything more about what you've heard on the podcast, get along to smartenough.org because we have show notes and I don't, I have no idea whether anyone ever clicks on them. Oh, no, actually, I do <laughs> because Michael Barnes is always reading them like with a magnifying glass and then finding right. any mistakes that we make in them. I, in fact, Michael I got to stop putting them up there. Yeah, yeah. He's making it too easy for them. <laughs> We should uh, just start speaking in Aramaic or something, so yeah. that Michael makes it harder for Michael to catch us. We, very, very important. Yeah, we we need more walls to accessing the podcast. <laughs> you know, our podcast is way too accessible. Yeah. I <laughs> and as we always like to say, elementary, my dear Watson, because because we talk to Lucy about space sedimentary rocks. And, Oh, look, I'm not. Son I'm not of proud what? Of, <laughs> I'm not Spooky. proud. Spooky. I'm, I'm proud. That's how we've managed to do this podcast for nine years. <laughs> I can see why it would have to come in at a high enough speed, but a low enough speed at a certain size, yeah. but not too big. And not, it'd be actually exactly right to get to the ground and be super dangerous. This sounds and, like a mobile game. Kill the kill the human with your with your thing, and it's like a single <laughs> button, and you've just got to pick the angle and speed or something. It's like, yes, like Angry and, Birds, but uh... <laughs> with the we, well, maybe we could, and it would have a, a potential landing zone based on the winds and the atmosphere. But then you have to make it big enough so that you could definitely kill the person, or if it didn't hit them, but you can't get too big, otherwise it breaks up. There you go. It's probably something to that. Mm. It's probably a, a game of a game of asteroids. <laughs> asteroids too. Asteroids, the revenge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can have we can have the podcast shipped over. That's 
Excellent. That's definitely how it works, huh? Yeah, that's right. Through a, through a series of tubes, we'll have it delivered to your door. No problem at all. I don't even know where that comment comes from anymore. That's like an old comment about the internet. And now I'm like, where does that come from? Series of tubes. It was some American politician trying to explain to people, older than himself, what the internet was and how security worked on it or something. And so he he set up this very simple idea to explain to real Luddites about how the internet works. And the internet was like, you're an idiot. It's not a series of tubes. It kind of is a series of tubes. <laughs> okay. Now I know. Excellent. This is not what we're talking about. This is the problem. See, Dr. Lucy, this is what happens. We just go on tangents. All don't right. ask we'll, we'll, me we'll... questions that you don't want me to over-explain the answer to. We don't normally go to video because it ruins our bandwidth. We, but that's why we're in the dark. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Just, just so you know, just so you're wondering why we're just sort of lurking in the darkness. Uh, thank you for agreeing to uh, chat to Dan and myself. My my colleague Dan's also on the line. Did you just say grueing? Is this because <laughs> we're in the dark? 